0: the Girl Tries Life podcast my name is Victoria Smith and I am your host. This is a podcast where we share stories of incredible women who are doing fascinating things with their lives. Now today I am over the moon to be joined by the author Bridget Schulte. Bridget is the author of Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When Nobody Has the Time. Now I remember seeing this book on the shelf at the library and I 100% resonated with it. It's just this most the most incredible cover that is a to-do list basically, just scribbles of things that You know, you're trying to keep in your head, like, do your taxes, do this, get the groceries. And that feels like everything I have, whether it's notes on my phone or notes on the back of envelopes or what's going around my critter brain. And so I knew I needed to read the book. And I'm so glad that I did, but I'm even more glad that Bridget was so kind to join us on the podcast. So Bridget is an award-winning writer and journalist and the director of the Better Life Lab and Good Life Initiative at New America. So this is a nonpartisan think tank in Washington, D.C., Now, the lab uses the power of data, transparency, and storytelling to redesign work so that it's sustainable, effective, and fair, reimagine gender equality for a fairer, more human future, and rewire social policy to meet the needs of diverse 21st century families. She was a staff writer for the Washington Post and the Washington Post magazine for nearly 17 years and was part of a team that won the Pulitzer Prize. She lives in Alexandria, Virginia with her husband and her two children, and she grew up in Oregon and spent summer. She lives in Alexandria, Virginia with her husband and two children. So we're just gonna get straight into it because this is all the good stuff. If you are someone that is, that feels like you've got a stressful relationship to time, that feels overwhelmed, that feels, that constantly says they're busy, this is a podcast for you. Trust me. Well, thank you so much, Bridget, for joining us on the podcast. We're so pleased to have you. I'm so happy to be here. So when I picked up your book, I feel like it came to me at the time of my life when I needed it most. I had just gone back to work after having my first baby and that you know, trying to manage your home life, manage your work life, and you know, all the hormones that are going on. I was like, this is just the, <laughs> this is the book I needed. And the cover literally was my life. I Scraps of paper everywhere in my house with to-do lists and trying to keep my brain together and just, yeah. So I, I greatly benefited from this book. So I think our listeners will as well. Now, You talk at the beginning of the book about having gone to a sort of time scientist or specialist and what brought you to do that? Like, had you been realizing that there was, your life was just too overwhelming and something needed to change? You know, I wish
1: that were the case. And I think, you know, because if if people listening to this podcast, they're going to be busy people. And so they, you know, just in case you don't get to the end, this is, I always talk now with the end in mind. I think probably, you know what brought me to the book is probably the biggest lesson that I learned out of it. when I everything that you said resonated so completely. You know, when I started working on the book, I had two. my kids were smaller, working full time. You know, my husband and I were not sharing things fairly. I felt like I was doing everything. I felt like I should do everything. I was always resenting doing everything. And I really felt like I was just hanging on by my fingernails. And the thing is, I didn't think that it could change. I thought that's just the way it was. I had made this choice to be a working mother and, you know, or or, or even a mother in general. And then, you know, and life was just going to suck from here on out. And everybody that I talked to, they were sort of in the same boat. So I felt hopeless. And I thought, this is just something I'm going to have to kind of muscle through, and I think this, this kind of crazy accident of working on this book and basically being given the gift of time to really research This is all my journalistic skills, you know, all my investigative reporting skills to really investigate modern life. I kind of had these two questions. Why are things the way they are and how can they be better? And I think the biggest lesson that I've learned is that they don't have to be this way, that there are larger structural sort of reasons why things are crazy, particularly for women. And those are things that we need to work on in the big sense. But there are also individual mindset shifts more than anything that we can make at the individual level that can make every day feel not like an everyday-a-thon, not, not crazy, like not like you're living with your to-do life, making you crazy, you know, your, your to-dos making you crazy and you're not even really living your life. So I think that's probably the biggest the biggest thing that I've learned is that, you know, you can't. <laughs> it doesn't have to be this way and it, it is crazy, but there is a better way. But how I came to that was a complete and utter accident. I was working, like I mentioned, at the Washington Post at the time. I was a, a reporter. I was there for nearly 17 years. I just left uh, not long ago. And I just, I, w- I was a maniac. I was working like a crazy person and, you know, never feeling like what I was doing was good enough. I didn't feel like I was doing a good enough job at work I didn't feel like I was a I was a good enough mother I didn't feel like I was, my house was particularly you know in great shape I didn't do a budget oh my god when would I have time to do that you know so everything kind of felt very precarious and you know I had three different childcare providers at one time and if anybody got sick my whole life blew up um, you know, I ran into interviews with people and I would ha- realize they were looking at me funny and realize I had a Snow White sticker on that my daughter oh. had put on that morning. You know, just I did. I just kind of felt like I was just, uh, you know, this kind of wreck. And so at the time, I being at the Washington Post, we were looking at. Our readership numbers. So this was back when they were looking at like who was reading the newspaper, and they were finding that they they really had dropped off in terms of women. Women were not reading news, and they were not reading the Washington Post. And so the editors wanted to try to figure out why, and they put together this women readers group, and it was hilarious. I got put on this group, and I walked into this room where there were all these other women, and many of them were mothers, or they were caring for elderly parents, or they had foster kids, or they, you know, they had lots of big responsibilities outside of work. And it was funny, we all sat down, and we kind of rolled our eyes. This is like, whoa, I know why women aren't reading the newspaper, because they're really busy. you know. Yep. It, and it became this kind of this really weird confessional where, you know, we had trouble reading the newspaper, and we worked for the newspaper, you know, because it was just mornings were crazy trying to get everybody out the door. And, And so we thought, all right, well, you know, the first thing that we want to do as reporters is, you know, we were supposed to write a report. So we wanted to find data and evidence. And so we thought, well, the first thing we should do is find out, is there any data about how busy women are? And, you know, talk about the one time you raise your hand and your life changes. I didn't know anything. I just raised my hand. I was like, I don't know. I'll I'll look for that. And part of it, I was I was curious myself, and part of it was sort of like, well, this will be check the box. This will be kind of on my to-do list for this Women Readers Committee. One more thing, I got to cram into my day. So I, I didn't know anything, and I I started Googling women, mother, busy, time. <laughs> and through that process, I found this whole... Area of social science called times research, where there are these academics who look at time diaries. I had no idea the Bureau of Labor Statistics collects time diary data, and then all these academics analyze it, and then they come up with these big pronouncements about how we live our lives. And so I found this one guy, his name is John Robinson, he was at the University of Maryland at the time. And he was considered sort of the father of all time use research in the United States. So I called him up and I said, we're doing this report about how women don't read the newspaper and we figured they're too busy. And he interrupted me and he said, you're wrong. Women aren't busy. Women have 30 hours of leisure a week. And I just about fell out of my chair, and I'm like, I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have 30 hours of leisure. And he said, Yes, you do. And come do a time study with me, and I will show you where your leisure is. So basically, this whole book started with a challenge. That's, <laughs> I was like, I, I, I hung up the phone, and I thought, Oh man, one more thing I'm doing badly. <laughs> you know, like, I'm supposed to have all this leisure time, and I don't even have that. And so it really started as a challenge where I did keep a time diary and I really began to track my time and what I was doing and how I felt about it. And then I went back to John Robinson and he analyzed a week's worth of time diary data and he found 27 hours of what he called leisure time and I called bits and scraps of garbage time. And that's when it made me really realize like, well, what's going on here? I wrote a magazine piece at that point. For the Washington Post magazine about this sort of quest for this you know mythical thirty hours of leisure and kind of what what it felt like to live as a working mother in the twentieth century, twenty-first century, and it was really interesting. I the the piece came out and I thought you know. I was sort of curled up in the fetal position. It's like, oh, man, I'm really exposing myself here. I usually put on this kind of professional veneer. I don't let anybody try to see the cracks underneath it. And, you know, I'm really I, I'm worried that people are going to think I'm this crazy, disorganized, neurotic idiot and everybody else has it wired. And it was shocking to me that in in the responses that I got to that article, they almost crashed the the Washington Post server because so many people wrote in and said, Oh, my God, you climbed into my head and you wrote about my life. Yeah. And at, at that point, I began to think, OK, if it's not just me and it's not just like this, you know, we don't have massive individual failures going on out there. What's happening? You know, why are things the way they are? And more importantly, how and you know how can they be different? You know, can they be and how can they be and, And how do we get there? And that really started the whole journey that really led to the book. And then ultimately, it led to me coming back to the Washington Post and writing about these issues full time, and then leaving the Washington Post and now coming to New America, which is a think tank here in Washington, DC, where, uh, you know, where I live and work. And uh, I now direct the Better Life Lab, and it, I have made it my job to try to figure out how do we change this? How do we make it better for all people, but particularly for women? Because we have really, you know, we're sort of the canaries in the, in the coal mine. It's really, it's been, it's been really tough, and it doesn't have to be.
0: Yeah. Well, and I thought what was interesting when you got some of that research back was that men had their leisure time sort of chunked more together so they got extended periods and women were typically like you're saying that bits and scraps of time what have you done or what can women do to extend their scraps of time into real leisure time yeah I
1: think that's a great great question and I think the first thing before any change is really becoming kind of crystal clear about why things are the way they are and really understanding kind of you know we're I feel like you know we're swimming in this water and uh, sometimes we have to begin to look to see it because there are these really powerful forces that are that kind of shape the way we think that shape the way then we act shape our family life shape the way we think about work that we don't even realize and so you know so what I talk about in the book is that I I talk about you know kind of the good life if you will in three spheres you know, Eric Erickson, who's a Harvard psychologist, he said, the richest and fullest lives make time for the three great arenas of life, work, love and play. So I kind of looked in the book, I look at each of those three areas. And now at the Better Life Lab, that's what I'm doing. We work on work and gender equality and social policy. Uh, I'm trying to pull leisure in because it's funny in the United States, I think the first thing you've got to understand about leisure is that we don't value it here. So it's not just that women don't have leisure, even though men do tend to have it in larger chunks. But nobody has much leisure time in the United States. We're the only advanced economy that does not have any national vacation policy. we uh, we on average get about ten days a, uh, a year if we're lucky, and that's a, you know, if we have an employer who gives it to us for paid vacation. And we don't use it all. You know, Americans leave among the most days of vacation on the table. So it's like we're gifting our time back to our employers. And that leads to another sort of really powerful force in the United States in particular that we think that the best workers work all the time and that we reward people who are, you know, think about how you brag. Oh, I was at the office until 11 o'clock last night. Oh, yeah? Well, I spent the night at the office. Oh, really? Well, I've moved into my office. You know, people just brag about how much they work we tend to think that they're the the better workers, and that's not true at all, and yet our systems and our structures really reward that, and that can be very difficult for women because women are still expected to do most of the housework and caregiving, and that's the other thing to understand is that we have these very powerful kind of gendered norms. It's like the 1950s, Ozzie and Harriet are still very powerfully playing in our minds. You know, and we might think, oh, so long ago, haven't we moved? And we certainly have. You know, you've got a majority of mothers who work, and yet you have absolutely very few policies or practices that actually help families combine work and life very effectively. We're the only advanced economy that doesn't have any paid maternity leave program. You know, we just did a big report looking at, well, how, how long should a leave be when you have kids? And the, the data is pretty clear. You know, it's certainly a whole lot longer than most most women take, but most women are back at work before a baby can even hold their head up. You know, that's,
0: that's just unbelievable. I read that report and it said, what was it, 40 weeks you guys landed on was ideal?
1: Well, it depends. We looked at four different four different outcomes, like infant health and wellness. Like for the best outcome for a child, it's one year. Yeah, one year split between parents. For the best outcome for a woman, you know, recovering from the trauma of childbirth, we said six months. And we looked at more than two hundred studies in the United States and internationally to like really look at the science. What does the data really show? You know, at six months, the majority of women are still experiencing at least one symptom of childbirth, whether it's fatigue or dizziness or urinary incontinence or even depression. You know, so six months is actually, you know, kind of the bare minimum for just recovery, the physical recovery from birth. We looked at gender equality. And what was really clear from the research is that there wasn't sort of a a particular length of time that led to more gender equality. But what did over time is when men actually took parental leave. And it's not clear whether it was like along with, you know, a mother or a partner or if it was solo. But when men took leave, then there was much greater equality in housework and child care three years later, you know, that it set the dynamic for the family early on that both parents would care, which was really critical. And then the last thing that we looked at was, you know economic impact and what we what we found is that for to encourage women to return to the labor force you know if leaves were too short women didn't tend to come back and if they were too long it was too hard for women to come back like in Bulgaria you could take like you know 3 to 4 years off but then it was really hard to come back and then what they found is that it would actually disadvantage other women because employers didn't want to hire women because you know oh my god I'm going to have to pay for you to be gone for 4 years so we found that the research showed there was sort of a sweet spot between 9 9 months or 40 weeks and 1 year so so i think that's really important is for for women to really understand that the deck is stacked against you from the start just structurally and so those are some structural things that we we really have to work on as a country as a society and that's what i'm doing that's what i'm hoping yeah. but but to answer your question so those are the sort of the three things understand that we you know, in work, we tend to value too much work and overwork. You know, when it comes to love, we still think that women can and should or are better at doing all the caregiving. And so women do spend two to three times the amount uh, the amount of time doing care work than men do. And that's also something that's actually not true, that men are also physiologically, biologically wired for nurture and want to do it. And so how do we create how do we create systems that, that help that, that? There is more sharing and there is more fairness and that couples can figure out what works for them, you know, but you're not just automatically defaulting to this Aussie and Harriet role. And, oh, by the way, mom, you get to go to work too. So you get to have like two or three jobs all at once. And then you have to understand that when it comes to play, we just don't value leisure time here. Uh, we tend to think that busyness is the best way to be. That's how you kind of, we show our status anymore. So, so when I talk about a mindset shift, one of the most important things I think for women to do is to first of all, understand that. And second of all, give themselves permission to give them time, give themselves time, time for what leisure is. It's like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. It's like whatever it is that brings you joy or energy or refreshes your soul. So for some person that could be going for a walk or going, you know, gardening, somebody else could hate gardening. That could be like taking whitewater kayaking lessons. For somebody else, it could be just sitting quietly or it could even be playing with your kids in a particularly joyful moment. It has to feel the sort of the the best leisure research that I found said that for leisure to it's, it's really how the time feels is what leisure is you know if you're on a bike ride with your family but you're totally stressed out because you don't know how your two-year-old is doing on the you know in the car seat and oh my god did you pack enough for lunch and did you organize that carpool if you've kind of got that ticker tape going uh, of stuff you got to do in your head it's not leisurely it's a it's like how how do you feel and so what's important is that over time you know, men have had more of a culture of leisure and they've had those longer chunks of time where they can sink into something that psychologists call flow, the flow state, you know, where you're really engaged in something. And and they talk about that as being kind of a peak human experience. Well, women's time throughout history has always been interrupted and divided, and, and it comes in smaller chunks. So women haven't had the opportunity to kind of sink into those periods of flow. So we haven't had the opportunity to have that peak human experience. And so what I argue is it's time that we do. And, you know, it's time to figure out how to set up our work and our the, sh- the way we share our care and home to to create that space for ourselves. And I think so some of it is understanding the awareness of, you know, kind of the reality out there, understanding that you need to shift your mindset, that it is okay, you are not selfish, it is not bad to take time for yourself, that it actually is part of what makes you human. And it's, you know, and that you really do need it. And, uh, you know, and after that is recognizing it doesn't have to be forever. I think sometimes we worry, it's like, oh, I can't, you know, I can't go for a whole afternoon and do this. But you know what? You can't take 10 minutes or you could schedule 30 minutes. You could do something once a week that really is fun, you know, and bring that into your life. And the last thing I'll say is the more you give yourself permission, the more you kind of create, you schedule that in, you create the opportunity for that to be in your, in your life. And the more you have that kind of experience, that feeling of, of joy and and leisure, even if it's a small piece of time, the more you practice at it, the better you're going to get at it and the more you're going to do it and the better it's gonna make your life feel.
0: Yeah. So what's interesting about on the work side of things, I'm really lucky to work for an employer that it's a very, it's a strong culture and they understand that being at your desk doesn't mean that you're the most productive. What are steps that women can take, or men who are working for organizations that have that more traditional environment? How can they start to shift their mindset at work or the way that they work when their structure is so sort of confined?
1: That's a again, that's a really good and an important question and it's one that I am working on now. So if anybody has any great ideas, get in touch with me. But what I will say is probably again a really important thing is to is to understand what the culture is you know, and the expectations are. But then the other thing is to really be clear about what the mission of your work is. So, you know, for instance, in law firms, it's really unfortunate that the way that you're valued and what the expectation is, because it's a billable hours culture is the expectation is, they want long hours, because the more you work, the more they can bill and make more money. So, uh, you, you know, sometimes you are in kind of a no win situation. I, I, in the book, I, I profile some uh, some companies that are that are experimenting with alternative billing models. This one woman I, I interviewed, she had three kids, and she said, with every kid, I got better at what I did, I got more efficient, um, I wrote better briefs, I won more cases, and yet the guy down the hall who took longer, who wrote more terrible briefs, who was not winning cases – he was rewarded financially because he worked longer hours. And she said, to me, that was the definition of insanity. So there are some structural things going on out there. But if you can't leave and if you are in a kind of a work-first environment that really values that kind of, I call it the ideal worker warrior kind of culture, one of the things that we've just done, we're in the middle of a project here at the Better Life Lab, which is really cool and very cutting edge i haven't seen this before we're working with partners who are behavioral scientists and really using how uh, how human beings think and make decisions to understand kind of where some of that overwork culture comes from and then designing systems to help people Better manage that kind of overwork and work life conflict. And so, uh, what I would suggest is people, you know, we have that, it's a resource that's called the Better Work Toolkit on our website at the Better Life Lab. And it's very data and evidence based. Everything in there has a footnote, it's related to a study. And I think sometimes this is really important to make the case to go to your manager, to go to your boss. You know, first of all, kind of create a network of people who think like you, who want to be focused on the mission, but don't want to, don't want to be at the office till 11 o'clock or online or the expectation that you answer emails in the middle of the night to really be focused on what is our mission? How do we perform best? And understand that, particularly for knowledge workers, you need time off and away to not only recharge, but that's actually how we're wired to get our best ideas. That we're wired to get that moment of insight when you're not sitting at your desk and and hunkered down. That you know our brain works in two functions, and one is task on, which is great, and that concentrated work. But the other is task off, and that's when uh, we're in that kind of more spacey your daydreamy mode and that's when ideas come so make the case to the boss that you we you know every worker needs both of these kinds of of time you know to do their most their best and most effective work make the effective work argument you know a lot of times people will say you know well i tried to push for more flexible time because i've got kids i hate to say this but you know unless you've got a really enlightened boss most people are thinking about the bottom line and so when you make the effective work argument that hits the bottom line Uh, argument, because it really does make your work more effective when you do have more control over your schedule, more predictability over your workflow. You know, there's great research that shows just anticipating a late night email creates more stress than actually getting a late night work email. And that there's better, much better productivity, efficiency, when you actually uh, create predictable time off for people you know, work in a team, you know, there are things that you can do, you know, in terms of how you work creating, you know, even right now in work-first environments. I'm sorry, I'm sort of going off on a tangent here. Should I just stop? No, no, no. Well,
0: so what's interesting about that, so I've worked in both corporate for actually an American oil and gas company, which very much had that, you know, I did 60 hour weeks and I burnt out really, really quickly. And now I work in nonprofit and the majority that I see, The turnover rate from a study we did was actually about 18 months. Employees lasted on average 18 months and then went to a different organization. And my theory behind that is that it's the burnout and the overwhelm. And there's this book that I have yet to pick up, but it's the um, Happy Healthy Nonprofit by Beth Cantor. And I'm told it talks about cost-effective strategies for people to actually, for organizations to bring these, practices into the workplace, because nonprofits often also have that reduced budget where they don't have the ability to often take on some of these strategies. Right. So that's something I I look forward to checking out. But what I thought was interesting about what you had said there, and that's in the book, is that perceived stress is as detrimental to your health as stress in the moment, almost.
1: That's really true. There's uh, And it's sort of like time. When I was talking about your perception of time is actually your reality. And the same is true of stress that if you have the perception that you're really stressed out that is your reality. You know, people it, it's it's truly amazing how powerful our minds are and how we think really shapes our reality. There's something called the uh, stress perception scale and that's what they found is that that if you have that perception of being stressed you actually do have the physiological reaction rather than somebody who might have gone through a really stressful event but doesn't feel as stressed out and why that's important is that there are, you know we know that stress has all sorts of really negative health consequences from you know inflammation diabetes, uh, high blood pressure, hypertension, you know, even cancer. uh, And that it's actually, you know, it can work like a contagion. Like we can come home from a really stressful day and that we can actually transmit that stress to our families, to our children. And that's a really, you know, that's, (laughs) that's a kind of scary thing as a mother, you know, or a parent, you want to do the best thing for your kid. And if you come home stressed, you, you know, you're actually physiologically potentially damaging your children. So that's an important thing to remember. But the other is that we're we're actually beginning to look at brain science and that that's that perception of being stressed out actually is having an effect even on our brain structure all the more important to, you know, kind of take that time, you know, there's almost a magic in taking time to pause or just breathe. You know, even if it starts small, like every time you hang up the phone, just take a deep breath. It's amazing how that that small thing can just reset where you are. Uh, It can reset you physiologically, it can kind of like, okay, I got this, I can do this. And taking that, you know, maybe more than one or two breaths, sort of like really getting clear on, you know, we talked about work and being clear on what the mission is to make work effective, taking that pause to be really clear on like, what's most important to you? And, you know, building your to do list from that, one of the the, you know, one of the things that helped me most immensely, because I, you know, I'm a list person, and I would have lists going all over the place. And and then I thought, well, I need to burn these lists. And, and that didn't really work for me either. But uh, David Allen, he talks about, well, think about your to do list as a brain dump. And I love that. So that's what I do every week, every Monday morning, I start off with my brain dump. And what that helps is that, You know, I get it all out of my head and then I can sort it by what is really important to me. And I do that. You know, I have a column for this is scheduled. I have a column for this is important. And then at the bottom, I have stuff. And if I get to it, great. If I don't get to it, fine. But before, everything was on my to-do list and it had the same value. And now, you know, I'll go in the morning, I'll I'll go with my running partner, we'll work out. And at the end of our run, we'll always turn to each other and say, what's your one thing today? And I've already figured out from my brain dump, kind of, uh, you know, everything's out on the table, so I don't need to worry about remembering it. I've already sort of taken time to pause to think about what's most important to me, you know, for this week, for this month. And, you know, and I do it in all three spheres what's important at work? What's important at home? You know, what's important to like refresh my soul for myself? What do I need? You know, so I have kind of already got that sense, and then that day it's like this is what's most important, and so then it sets the day up for a win because if I do that one thing, the day's great. But if I say, well, I've got to do this and this and this and this and this, and I've got seventy things, you know, you set yourself up for failure because you can't do seventy things, and also seventy things are probably not all that important or not equally important. So, uh, so learning to take that time, like you said, you're a planner. I, you know, we, I, I am, and I'm not. But taking that time to just even check in with yourself, to be self-aware about what's important to you in this moment, in this week, and then setting your agenda from there, that's probably one of the most powerful things you can do.
0: Okay, so just a quick note from our sponsor. Today we are sponsored by Audible. So Audible have over 180,000 titles available. And I want to tell you exactly why I love Audible. We're talking today about being overwhelmed. One of the things that happened when my life got busy is that I stopped reading because I was too tired. I was too mentally exhausted at the end of the day. And reading audi- listening to audiobooks, reading audiobooks, has changed my life. I can now consume far more content, uh, so many more books, humorous, comedies, whatnot, than I could before, and it's enriching my life in ways that I can't even explain. So if you would like a free 30-day trial, you want to go to audibletrial.com forward slash life. So again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash girl tries life. Now, unfortunately, Overwhelmed isn't on Audible. I haven't seen it available as an audiobook. But if you are feeling overwhelmed, I can highly suggest some comedy audiobooks. If you haven't listened to Tina, Tina Fey's Bossy Pants, highly recommend it. Mindy Kaling's books are absolutely hilarious. Basically, if you just want to go for the laughs, it is a great Way to enjoy some uh, some relaxing audiobook fun time. So, audibletrial.com forward slash girl tries life. Okay, back to our interview. Yeah, I actually had a mentor that taught me that a few years ago when I was in a continued state of overwhelm of that you know this is the one or two things that I want to get done today anything else is icing on the cake and it actually made me calmer happier and more productive because I was getting the most important things done as opposed to putting them on the side and stressing about them and stressing about them they were just getting done exactly exactly so most moms that I know we wanna do it all because we've been told that we can. We wanna We want to kick butt at work. We wanna have a clean house. We want to still have romance in our lives. And so many of us still wanna throw like the Pinterest worthy party for our kids. But like, how can we deprogram the want? How can we sort of, it feels like it's a condition that we've been bred into. How can we get away from decondition or wherever well, I'm you know, going with this. <laughs> yeah, I know, right.
1: Well, like, you know, it's funny because we talk about, yeah, having it all. That's always been the, that's been sort of the the catchphrase since the, you know, 70s, 60s or 70s. And nobody can have it all, you know, or, or what I used to hate is like, well, you can have it all. You just can't have it all at once. I hate that, too, because then it's sort of like, well, what if I died tomorrow? You know, are you telling me I just need to live this intensive, crazy life and not be happy and that someday I'll get to be happy? You know, that's sort of like the myth of retirement, right? Well, don't go on that trip now. Go on the trip when you retire, because then, you know, those will be the golden years. Well, what if by then you're like my dad? You've had a couple strokes and you can't get out of bed. So there goes your golden years. So I think that it's really important to figure out how do you bring that into your life right here, right now? And I think the way you do that is think, what's most important to you? You know, when you talk about having it all, what does that mean right now? You know, and how important are, are all of those things? And I think, you know, some of that, the Pinterest party, that's, that's social pressure, right? Um, you you want to post that on Pinterest because why? Because you want people to think you're this great mom Why do you care what people think? Are you a great mom? You know, how do you define that? What does that mean? What is your relationship like with your kids when you're throwing that Pinterest worthy party? Are you running around like a maniac? Is your kid even happy? Is that what they even want? And I think that sometimes, again, taking that time to pause to begin asking yourself those why questions You know, for me, it might not have been Pinterest. You know, for me, it was like, oh, I have to bake the cupcakes for the Valentine's party or for the birthday because I'm this working mother and I feel really guilty. So I want to make sure that I overdo to prove to the other mothers that I'm really a good mother. And so I'd be up really late doing some crazy project or, you know, baking something. And then the next morning, what would happen? I'd be exhausted and I would snap at my kids. <laughs> and I, you know, I, the very people that I was supposedly doing this out of love. And it, it was a really painful thing to realize that I wasn't doing it because out of love for my children. I thought I was, but I was really doing it for my own sense of guilt and for, you know, for how I thought other people would look at me. And so, I guess that's what I would really encourage women to do: is is begin to take time to think, what is most important? How do I how do I define that, and then how do I organize what I do, uh, you know, as a result? You know, so you want to have a, a great dinner party, great. Well, does it have to look like Martha Stewart? And if it does, well, then why? You have to, you know, kind of ask yourself that question a couple times. And if you do and it comes out like because it gives me joy and because I want to, well, then do it. But then recognize that if you're going to put on that Martha Stewart party and all of the effort that it takes to do that, well, maybe you're not going to do something else that would also be important. And then recognizing that's fine. I'll do that next week or I'll focus on that next month. I think maybe broadening the lens a little bit and thinking not trying to do everything every single day. You know, I think that was another, we talk about work-life balance. It's really not about balance. It's, you know, it's, and it's not about juggling because that sort of gives a sense of like, you know, being precarious. But it's about kind of like how do you bring all, it's like it's like think about it as a flow or, you know, fluid or the ocean. You know, the tide comes in and the tide goes out and that there are going to be times when it's really busy and it's hard to get to some things and there are going to be times when it's not so busy and then that's when, you know, you can focus on some other things. But recognizing that things are always in in fluid motion and things are always changing and that what matters most is trying to figure out in that moment You know, what is most important to me at work with my family and the people that I love and, you know, with my own soul, with my own sense of self, with my play and my leisure time.
0: And I think that's a discipline that will take some time to sort of train back into people. But once you can do that, it's incredibly valuable.
1: Well, you know, it's funny, it's not that hard, you know, it's just, it's, you you can be rushing to work and all of a sudden decide to like take a breath and, and, and begin asking yourself, why am I rushing to work? You know, is it, what am I getting out of this? Does it give me this adrenaline rush? So then I feel great. Well, then if it does embrace it, it's like, woo, I'm, you know, if, if that's what feeds you and gives you energy, make it feel like more of a choice. Sometimes when we feel overwhelmed, we feel so powerless, we feel like we haven't had a chance to make a choice. And what stress comes from is that feeling of, you know, an inability to control or predict anything in your life. So when you're in the middle of something, whether it's comfortable or, or uncomfortable, take a moment to pause and just ask yourself, is this, is this something that I'm choosing? And if it's not something you want to choose, begin asking, well, Why? And then that can help get you to some like an interesting place. And then if it is something, you decide, well, yeah, maybe it feels uncomfortable, but I am choosing it. Embrace it and go with it. And I think the more that we we understand kind of where we're coming from, the more that we are the the, uh, the authors of our own experiences and the better things are gonna feel. I, I think what we don't realize is how much we're kind of dancing to a tune that somebody else is playing. You know, we're trying to live up to what other people are doing. We're trying to fit in. And human beings are social creatures, and we are wired to conform. But sometimes it's that very conformity that can make us feel so miserable, because right now, all of the signs are pointing to overwork and overwhelm and overdo, and that's how you show your status. And, you know, and so that's where... Taking that time to just becoming your own friend (laughs) and kind of shutting out that noise is important. And then finding like-minded peers who think like you, who love their kids. But, you know, maybe pin the tail on the donkey is okay rather than the, you know, Hawaiian extravaganza luau, you know. Find those people who think like you do where it's much more important that you sit down and blow bubbles with your kid and, you know, ask them about their day or have a quiet moment with them than putting on some big show, you know, because life gets lived in those small ordinary moments. So embrace those ordinary moments. Don't live for the big show, you know, that might be sort of the the picture that you take. But I mean, think back in your own life. What do you remember, You know, I I don't know that I remember Christmas as much as I remember smaller, those smaller moments because they touch you somehow. So I I think that's an important thing is like find the ordinary beauty in
0: life. I remember running through the sprinkler. Yeah. (laughs) Those are the moments. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So what does your life look like or how does it feel now? What are the changes that you've made to decrease the overwhelm? Well,
1: you know, and the first thing that I want to say is that I'm still very much a work in progress. I call myself a recovering workaholic, a recovering helicopter parent, and a recovering busy addict. You know, so I... I've made changes and I but I don't want to come off as I'm any guru you know as uh, (laughs) you know I still send late night emails it's like I know I know I shouldn't do this I'm sorry I'm going to try not to do this again I you know my team here they installed boomerang on my computer so that I could actually get something because I want it out of my head you know there's so much going on in there I don't want to forget so they've installed it so that I can actually write the email and then schedule it to go out during work hours so then I'm not stressing everybody else out. But then I also kind of have a a chance to empty out my brain. So I would say, you know, yes, very much a work in progress. But there are definitely some things that I've done. Um, And I think part of it is I'm much clearer about kind of where those pressures are coming from. I ask myself more questions when I fall. And I do, you know, and I get busy and I get distracted and I get overloaded. You know, I kind of catch myself sooner than I used to. I don't tend to spiral down and despair quite as much as I used to, and I kind of get back and try. I, I sort of have. I, I guess what's what's mainly different is that I have hope because I've seen how things can be different, and I, I I've also had the great luxury of really being able to dig deeply into this whole subject and read a lot and talk to experts and. You know, a lot of people struggle with this. You know, I wrote a piece not long ago for New York Magazine about, you know, the expert's dilemma, even like some of the best work-life experts out there. They struggle themselves with trying to manage work and life responsibilities and sort of feel feel good. So I think the other thing I've done is is focus more on meaning, you know, kind of really asking myself those very basic essential questions. I stop and I pause more. You know, sometimes that means I'll, I'll have what I call chair time and I meditate. I don't do it for much more than 10 minutes, you know. And sometimes sometimes that's just a few breaths at the end of the day, and that's that's sort of enough. One of the things that I've just become so convinced by is really the power of mindset and what we think does shape so much of our reality. So human beings have a negativity bias that we're just wired to no this bad things and I remember having early conversations with a coach and she said well tell me something new and good and I'm like I I was so stumped by that because all I was just ready with a litany of everything that was going wrong in my life and that was a that was sort of like a, a kind of an aha moment for me and so I that's one of the things I do first thing in the morning I think of three things I'm really grateful for that happened in the last 24 hours and before I go to bed at night, I think of three things that I'm grateful for that happened like in the last 24 hours. And, you know, when you begin to to train your mind to look for what's going well in life, it really does shift the way your life feels. It's not to say that things don't go wrong. I mean, my sump pump just broke. My air conditioner broke a few months ago. It's like, wow, I've, how am I going to? How am I going to find time to, you know, fix that? And how am I going to afford it? You know, so it's not like stressful and overwhelming things don't happen. They do. That's life. But it's sort of like recognizing that it's part of something larger. And that sort of like thinking about that sort of longer arc of what's meaningful in life. And that and so I I try to bring that that to the work that I do, you know, really focusing on what's most important and how do I bring my full attention to that. You know, working in one of the things that really helped me enormously was recognizing that task on task off nature of our brain and our attention. And so I try to work in sprints and then take a break. Uh, I don't always do that, and sometimes I do muscle through. And boy, that's always a mistake. And I know it's a mistake, and I keep doing it. And I guess I, I'm going to, you know, keep doing that until I learn my lesson. But I I tend to do that more. My husband and I probably one of the biggest changes that we made is. We really have done a lot of work to more fairly share everything. And what that's done, it's been amazing that it started to, it it freed up so much mental space that I didn't realize I was keeping all of this stuff in my head, all the logistics planning and did we do this and what about the doctor and I forgot about the eye appointment. And when when we really worked to become really full partners, not, not that he was just my helper but that he would actually not only take the kid to the doctor, but actually make the appointment. You know, why, why do we think that women are wired to do that or, yeah. or the summer camp planning or, you know, clipping the fingernails? Why, why do we think women are the only ones that can do that? So when we began to share things much more fairly, I had so much more space in my life and I just to, to think about other things. And I also found that I had been so resentful that that was, that was such a negative kind of experience with him and with the family that to have more I don't even want to call it support because it's really more of a sharing that just that that changed our relationship completely and I feel much more like we have a partnership I feel like there's much more of an ease in our family I think that really impacted our kids they see both of us you know they see my husband cooking and then I'll do the dishes. You know, whereas before I used to do everything, they'll see him going grocery shopping. And if he doesn't get something, I don't go back and rescue him anymore. <laughs> and that was the other thing that, you know, like looking at time, women spend anywhere from three to five hours a week redoing stuff that they think that their partners did badly. You know, the, first of all, you know, drop your standards. Yeah. You know, a, little, a few dust bunnies are okay. And I think I had to to recognize that I had to drop some of my standards and we had to come to agreed upon standards and really come up with systems that worked so we didn't have to fight or negotiate over everything. Yeah. And I really I really do make time just to pause or to do something I enjoy. And again, some you know, sometimes we just got back from vacation, so sometimes that was like going to the ocean and boogie boarding in the morning, you know, mm-hmm. where something that might I might not have done before. And sometimes I have busy weeks and, you know, it's it's just, again, sitting on the edge of the bed and taking a few deep breaths and recognizing that for that day, that's enough.
0: Yeah. What I love about this is that both from speaking with you and with the book is that it's achievable and it is that mindset and we can do the work to change the way we think and the way we perceive things and not that it's not going to take effort, not that some days aren't going to be harder than others, but it's achievable, which is great. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And then the more we put on our own oxygen mask, you know, then we'll begin to see these bigger structural issues and we can start working on them together, Yeah, you know, because one of the reasons why we don't have more family supportive policies is that the very people who need them are too damn busy to actually go <laughs> and talk yeah. to their lawmakers and, and try to make the change happen or run for office. And so that's why we have these really outdated and calcified work cultures and our policies are completely at odds with how we live our lives. Lives, you know and that's only going to change when we begin to first take care of ourselves and then we can start kind of looking and seeing how we're part of this larger fabric.
0: Yeah. How do you spend your leisure time now?
1: You know, it depends. I I think this is what's the most important thing it, again is you know, it's it's how it feels. And so uh, how I feel is different. And so what I try to do is uh, kind of have some quiet time and ask myself, what do I really need right now? What do I really want? So I don't sort of make those assumptions. So again, you know, like I say, we just got back from vacation. So that that's total leisure time. And I would wake up in the morning and think, what do I really want? What do I feel like I need? And, you know, one day it was just sitting in a chair and reading all day another day I felt like I really just want to feel connected to my kids so I did something that they wanted to do that I wouldn't necessarily have chosen but it's something they wanted to do and because my goal or my you know my desire for the day was to feel connected to them it made that whole activity so much more enjoyable because it didn't really matter what the activity was I just wanted to be with them that was what I had decided was important so I would say I do take time for for play and for leisure and it just it really depends on on how I'm feeling in that moment and what I feel like I need.
0: Yeah. Well, we're going to wrap up with the five questions I ask all of our guests. So the first one is, what are the things or the projects that are getting you really fired up in a good way?
1: Yeah, it's so funny. And I have to admit, I did not prepare for this. So I'm just going to wing these. Totally fine. So I think what gets me really fired up is, you know, honestly, it's the work that I'm doing right now. It's this excitement about you know the world doesn't have to be this way. You know we can make life better for people, it's, it's why I named this program the Better Life Lab. And I just get really excited that it's my job to work on, work on, uh, work on things that can that can make life better for people.
0: Yeah. What's the most inspiring book that you've read in the past few years besides your oh, own? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That is so hard.
1: I've read so many great books. I read four books over vacation, which was awesome.
0: Beautiful. And
1: and they were all really inspiring. I mean, I I read Lab Girl by Hope Yarin. I never knew plants were so interesting. That was a fascinating book. You know, I read The Secret History of Wonder Woman by Jill Lepore. I had no idea. That was such a fascinating history. And there was a lot of suffragette kind of history in there do I have to choose just one there's so go for a few yeah so many great books you know I love anything Roxane Gay writes you know they're they're just fantastic writers out there
0: that's great we can that's totally great we've got a few okay is that enough absolutely
1: (laughs) I I could go on and on
0: yeah do you have a favorite quote or words that you live by
1: you know, I suppose there are a couple um, at the uh, you know, the tagline on my on my email is something that I saw once and as a writer and storyteller it really spoke to me and it said the shortest distance between two people is a story. And I really believe that, you know, especially now we've got so many divisions and so much yelling and and anger in our country. And yet, if we can tell our stories to each other, honestly, there is this core of humanity, no matter what your life circumstances are, or how different, you know, your views are, that connects us to each other. And so I find great hope in that.
0: That's great. What's the best life lesson that you've learned or advice that you've been given?
1: Oh, man, there's so much. And boy, there's so much I've needed to learn. You know, I think sometimes I, I, I've I, had sort of perfectionist and procrastination tendencies, and I've been very hard on myself. And, you know, and, and I think sometimes the best, you know, the best advice was like, you know, uh, you know, just start, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to know all the answers. You know, if there's something that you want to try to do, if there's a change you want to make, just start.
0: Yeah, I love that. So, last question, Bridget, is what does it mean to you to live your best life?
1: Whew! You know, yeah, isn't that that's the that's the whole like you know meaning of life question, right? You know, I, I think it's having the feeling at the end of the day that you know what I've done is meaningful, is worthwhile. You know that I've connected to other people, that I've been. Um, that I've been a good friend and a good mother and a good wife and a good daughter. And, um, that those connections are, are strong and powerful. And, um, it's a good question, living your best life. It's just more of a feeling that, that who you are and what you're doing is worthy and it matters and it's enough.
0: Well, thank you so much, Bridget, for spending your time with us. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So my big aha moment in talking with Bridget is that the way that we feel about stress and the way that we feel about time, our perception of it is our reality. And so it's not like, I I don't want to say it's all in our head because obviously we are experiencing stress as well. But the way that we think about it has a physical reaction in our body and it is just as bad for us as being chased by a tiger, right? If I'm stressed about my meeting tomorrow, if I'm stressed about my inbox, if I am, you know, losing my mind over my schedule with my kid, that is as bad for me as eating badly or doing anything like that. And so I didn't want to just stress the the negative part of that concept, but the positive is that we can do the work to rewire our brain, right? We can reframe we can also even just going into it knowing that that's how your brain works I think will help help realize that you can make a choice about stress right and I do say this from experience I did work a job where it was like 60 hour weeks I was constantly stressed and then I got to a point with that job where I made a decision I made a decision in my head that that job was not going to define me It was not going to define my life or my stress levels. This is not to say I never got stressed out. It's just to say I put a different level of importance on it. And I enjoyed my life so much more as a result. And I've tried to carry that over into my life since, you know, since new employers or that kind of thing. And, you know, I struggle with it a little bit with children for sure. But um, I think the more work that we can do to train our brains to think differently, the better of an impact it's going to have on our overall mental health and our physical health, right? As a result of this, it's exactly what we were talking about. I am so pleased that Bridget joined us for this podcast. I am over the moon. If you want to see show notes for today, and I highly recommend you do, and then you can find how to uh, purchase Bridget's book and all that kind of information, you're going to want to go to girltrieslife.com forward slash podcast forward slash four zero because it's episode 40. I can't believe we made it there, guys. Again, if you want to pick up an Audible book, you go to audibletrial.com forward slash girl tries life. And then finally, sneak peek for our next episode. So our next episode is going to be on November the 9th. And we are joined by Jenna Spassard, who is the owner of of a tiny house. So she started a blog called tiny house giant journey and she takes her blog, she takes her blog, she takes her tiny home on the road. So we talk about what it's like to live in a tiny home, why she made that huge shift, what it means for relationships for people, how she feels about her possessions, all that kind of stuff. It's just a fascinating interview. So I'm so glad that she is joining us. So tune in on November 9th for that. Take care, guys. Bye.